Welcome to This is Type 1, real-life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for 25 years. I'm a life coach, author, and speaker. I also work full-time as a process analyst in the power industry. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jessie Tuggy, and I've had diabetes for nine years. I love hiking and painting. I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after I get my degree in college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my life and my future, to learn everything I can about type 1 diabetes. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 119 of This is Type 1, real-life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today, we're talking with photographer Madison Thorne about her experience with type 1 diabetes and her pandemic photography project called High-Risk Humans. Before we jump in with Madison, Jesse has the win for the week. Awesome. So my win this week is that I was actually a starter in my rugby game, meaning I was one of the first people on the field. I was really proud of myself because that's the first time that that's ever happened, ever, literally in anything. Like I've never been a starter for anything. <laughs> so to be a starter in college on a D1 team for the most intense sport that I've ever done, I was really proud of myself. And I was a forward prop. And if you know what that means, kudos to you. And I'm very proud that you know that. So my fail is that no matter how much I prepare for it, if I take a bath, my blood sugars, at least on my CGM, go nuts. I've talked about this in the episode on swimming in hot tubs, but my CGM does not like hot water. And this is the Dexcom D6. It just, it does not like hot water. So submerging it during a bath makes it mad. And then I end up dealing with either the wild numbers afterward or waiting for the tech to stop throwing its fits. <laughs> so either of those options are just not very fun. All right. And our hack this week is to do trial and error. Literally keep trying new things when it comes to something new in your routine, because that will become routine eventually for your blood sugars and they will adjust. But definitely keeping an eye on it and trying out different or new things always helps. And now here's Madison. Hi, Madison. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. So to start off, tell us who you are and the role that diabetes plays in your life. My name is Madison Thorne, and I'm a type 1 diabetic. I just had my four-year in June. So what was the story of that diagnosis? Did you know anything about diabetes before that? Any family history? I did not. There is no family history in my family, unfortunately. I'm the, I'm the special little unicorn. But uh, my diagnosis story, I guess, is uh, my biggest symptom, my fighting weight. Let's start there. My fighting weight is uh, about 120. And I was down to 87 pounds. But I, yeah, I was nothing. I was on death's doorstep. <laughs> and, uh, but I didn't have any health insurance and I didn't have any money. So, you know, you tell yourself that you'll be fine over and over again if you're, if you're a broke person without health insurance. But finally I had uh, some income and the first paycheck went to bills. And the second paycheck, I took myself to urgent care and, uh, they they opened the door to the exam room and I knew the doctor and he said, what on earth is going on? And I, and I, I remember being like exhausted and just like sitting in the chair, kind of slumped over. 
I was like, is it that bad, doc? And he goes, I don't know what's wrong with you, but we're starting you on fluids immediately. I said, okay, man, whatever. And uh, they did a blood draw. He came back in, you know, 30 minutes later or something like that and said, you're a type one diabetic and you need to go to the, the hospital right now. And I didn't, I'm like, it didn't, the weight of it didn't really set in. And it was my day off. I was like, doc, this is not how I wanted to spend my day off. He's like, oh, you're going to be there for like five days. It's like, all right, man, cool. So that's, uh, it's, that's how I almost died. And then I'm now not dead. That's a great story. But like how you ended it. Now you're not dead. That's perfect. No, I'm not dead. <laughs> Striving to not be dead. So in the last four years, have you found out anything that you like more or less about type one? So favorites and least favorites? There's not fun and then less not fun. That's <laughs> all, fair. It's all kind of, um, it's all not fun. But I got, I was fortunate enough to have health insurance for the first time this year. So now I'm wielding a Dexcom and I have an Omnipod and um, I have all this information now that I didn't have before. And that's been quite wonderful. What was the process like for you to get the, the Dexcom and the Omnipod? Awful. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, so it's kind of, it's kind of a long story, but uh, a friend of mine called me in the summer of 2020. So, you know, we were all just checking in on each other as best we could during that time. And he called me and he said, Matt, I just watched this documentary on diabetes. And I laughed at him and I said, why would you do that? And he said, because you're my friend and I want to know what you deal with every day. And that knocked me out. And he's, then he says, um, what's this, what's this uh, CG, CG something? And I said, it's a constant glucose monitor and I don't have health insurance and I can't even get anyone to tell me how much it costs because I don't have health insurance. And he says, well, we're going to get you one. And I laughed at him a second time. And lo and behold, my friend EJ and his wife, Laura stayed on the phone with me for hours during, you know, the, when the, the healthcare marketplace was open that, you know, November, there's a, Music Health Alliance, which is a wonderful organization that helps musicians and people in the music industry get access to health insurance. So through all of these people that were more hard-headed than I was, January 1st of this year, I had health insurance for the first time ever. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> we actually did an episode on how much diabetes costs without insurance. If you uh. use like the amount of insulin I do, which is actually pretty low compared to most people. And it's like 17 grand a year. Oh my God. And that's if you want a Dexcom tandem with Novolog insulin and like doctor's appointments, lab tests, just diabetes, not anything right. else except diabetes, 17 grand a year. If you, if you just want to like do well, yeah. if you just want to exist in a healthy manner, that's yep. insane. Yep, it's a second a second mortgage or a second rent payment. It's frustrating. Uh, yeah, that I'm sorry, I can't listen to that episode. It would just cause me too much stress and anxiety. <laughs> okay. I couldn't do well, it. Well, that episode would tell you how much the CGM costs without insurance. Oh, no. <laughs> I did get a rep on the phone once through uh happenstance. I was I had a CGM rep on the phone and they ended up telling me they didn't want to tell me but they ended up telling me I, I wrote it down somewhere i can't remember what it is but it's shocking 
It's horrifying. Yeah, I'm I'm so upset that people have to deal with that. I've been blessed with great insurance my entire life. So hearing your struggle just kind of brings it all home for not just me, but everybody who's listening to this is that everybody out there, regardless of like your station in life, if you have diabetes, you have to have access to these things. Yes. And the fact that, that some people don't is infuriating. Yeah. Even when it comes down to test strips, because before I had insurance, you know, before I had the CGM, I was just doing test strips and test strips are so expensive and they're on, it's on a scale. You know, you can have cheaper test strips, but they're less accurate. So I was kind of doing these like middleway test strips, quasi affordable, but I was also using, I was also testing less than I should have. And oh, I, yeah. you know, I'd get, I'd feel kind of weird or something like that in the day. And I would just not test because I couldn't ultimately afford to. That's crazy. Yes. Yeah. Insurance is like, you need, you can test three times a day. Okay. But you're like, no, my doctor told me I need to test at least six times. And even when I was on the CGM that you um, had to calibrate, I would still test like 12 times a day mm -hmm. on the CGM just to make sure it was right. And now that I have the, the G6, I don't actually test all that often anymore. But like I have a drawer full of test strips that I... I'm going to take forever to get through. <laughs> it's kind of like lancets. When you have lancets, you just end up with a ton of lancets because you just don't change them that often. Yeah, I haven't changed lancets. And it's <laughs> who actually changes lancets. That's like my, my husband's pet peeve is that I don't change lancets that often. <laughs> I did when I first, you know, when I was first diagnosed and they're like, you know, change lancets every time. And I did religiously. And then I was like, why would I do this? <laughs> This is silly. Yep. I don't think I've changed my lancet in over a year. Shh, okay. For everyone out there, if you actually want to change your lancet, just do it with your fallback and spring forward. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that. Change your smoke detector batteries and your lancets. Yep. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, okay. So you've had type one for about four years. Mm -hmm. Through that time, have you found any uh, diet that works better for you for managing your blood sugars? My relationship with food is kind of odd. I love cooking. I love feeding my friends. Actually, that is my favorite thing in the world to do. I love making food for my friends. But when it comes to feeding myself, I could not care less. And I've never really had an appetite. I think all of my stress and anxiety sits in my stomach. It, it kind of has something to do with it. But I just don't care about food. And so with the, it's really unfortunate because then you throw in the added stress of being a diabetic and ultimately like having to eat. It, it gets kind of complex. So for me, if I want to eat it, that's a big deal. And so I will eat it and I will do it to the best of my abilities. So like um, if it's pasta, I, I have a scale, you know, I like I have a kitchen scale and I will measure out 56 grams of pasta and I will pre-bolus my tail off and I'll just, so I don't really have a diet. I just, if something sounds good, then I'll eat it and I'll just do it to the best of my abilities. That is an approach I have never heard before because I don't think I've met a diabetic who's like, I don't actually like food. <laughs> well, it's not that I don't, it's just I don't care about, it's not, it's not at the forefront of my brain to like constantly seek sustenance. I, I just, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who are like, I wish I had that problem. <laughs> 
it's it's I it's unfortunate actually. I wish I cared. But if I could eat at a regular schedule or something like that, my life would probably be easier. But with oh, okay. like I said, with the added stress of being diabetic and in my head, I have to eat. Like and anytime you tell me to do something, I don't want to do it. Mm, <laughs> so that personality. Yeah, it's it's a really unfortunate. I wish it wasn't like this. I wish um, I wish my relationship with food was a little different. But I'll cook for you anytime. I'm a great cook. <laughs> you would get along well with my husband. He's a chef too. Oh, fantastic! Kind of speaking of the the stress and the anxiety, what does burnout mean to you? Burnout to me, you know, we fight the same battle every single day. We wake up in the morning. We check our phones to check our sugars. We adjust. We uh, then have a day filled with test strips and ups and downs and doctor's appointments and stress about this, stress about that. Our entire lives are based around managing our diabetes. And so on top of that, we have to exist. You know, we have to pay bills. We have to do this. We have to do that. It's this constant juggle, but it's all day, every day. And burnout for me happens when there's just the one thing that goes wrong on top of everything else. So like Bukowski wrote this poem called uh, The Broken Shoelace. And he lists all of these things that can go, these horrible tragic events like a car accident or the death of a loved one or something like that. He's like, but he, he says, but a broken shoelace time is what sends someone to the madhouse. The other day, I was kind of fighting my sugars all day and had dinner, changed out new pods, dosed for dinner, and my sugar started spiking dramatically. And I, it was a little carb heavy of a dinner. I'll give it that. So I, I dosed, I ended up like rage bolusing for over this meal, right? I was getting so frustrated. Finally came to the conclusion that it was a bad pod site. So I grabbed my insulin pen, did a manual dose. 30, 45 minutes later, went back to check it and it had actually gone up. So I, next thing I know was in the 300s and it turns out my, it was the last of that insulin pen and the insulin had gone bad. And that I just started crying. I was like, that, that broke me. I couldn't, it was just one too many things that went wrong that day. So when something like that happens, when I reach my breaking point, I have learned to let myself break. Let it happen. If you have to cry, let yourself cry. It's okay. We can only be so strong for so long. And this battle we fight continuously every day is astronomical. And so for anyone listening, if you hit your breaking point, go ahead and allow yourself to break. You're not less of a person for that. You're not, it says nothing bad about you when you do that. Just accept the fact that you got to cry this one out for a minute <laughs> and then drink some water. You just cried out a bunch, a bunch of water. So drink some water and, uh, you know, do whatever you have to do to get those sugars back in order. Yeah. And then one thing that really helps me is, especially with highs, is if I can sleep it off, like Ooh. take a bunch of insulin, just bring it down and then go to sleep. Cause then you don't have to like deal with the like the emotions and the roller coaster of while it's coming down. I've yeah. noticed with when my blood sugar goes really high, especially if it's during the day, I watch it and then I get extra frustrated the more that I watch it. So mm -hmm. if it happens closer to bedtime, I could just go to sleep and not have to deal with it. <laughs> That's brilliant. 
just go night night and then it's nothing's happening it's yeah, not it everything's fine better <laughs> uh that's fantastic all right so the last four years haven't to me at least been very different for like the diabetes sphere of tech and anything but since you were diagnosed have you noticed any big changes or significant changes from your perspective in the diabetes sphere not that I'm aware of. As you said, four years is not that long of a period of time as far as technology and whatnot. I am excited about you know, Omnipods being the next round being able to be looped. That's an exciting bit of progress. I know okay. the DIYers have been doing that for ages, and I absolutely applaud them for all their efforts with that. But um, to it be you know, FDA certified is kind of a big deal. Yeah. It's nice that Omnipod is kind of catching up with uh, both Tandem and Medtronic for having the closed loop. Mm -hmm. Knowing what you know now, is there anything differently that you wish you could have done or anything that you wish you could have done differently in the first couple years of diagnosis? I wish I had been given a better education. That would have been kind of nice. You know, when I was in the hospital, they gave me a little pamphlet on type 1 diabetes that essentially said, the only thing you ever have to worry about is carbs. That's it. If you don't eat carbs, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And so I went three years thinking that was that. And it wasn't until I got my CGM and I started seeing what was actually happening and finding out that there's so much more than carbs. In, in the pamphlet that they gave me, they said, like, they gave, listed like three things that would never affect your sugars. One was, pickles and one, the other one was coffee and so you're she's laughing right now i know you can't see this because it's a podcast but she's laughing at me right now and it's because caffeine can totally affect your sugar levels it's uh it's the uh it's the caffeine in it and so i spent three years thinking that it was doing absolutely nothing to me and it turns out it was totally messing with me it was just um yeah <laughs> so coffee doesn't affect me like that, but it does affect my co-host. So Jesse will have mm. insulin or sugar spikes from the caffeine. And I've heard plenty of stories from other type ones. They're like, yeah, coffee, coffee affects my number. So the fact that it's in a pamphlet that they give you in the hospital, like you won't have to worry about coffee. That's a lie. <laughs> that is totally a lie. It's false. I actually did find the coffee that doesn't affect my sugar levels. And I was so beyond excited. I ran out of coffee one day and I walked to the shop around the corner and picked up a cup and came back and drank it and nothing happened. And I started freaking out and I called the coffee shop. I said, what did you guys roast today? And they're like, oh, such and such from the local place. And I said, thank you. <laughs> and I ran to the store and it's the, the it's what I've been getting ever since. You want to share that, or is that oh, a, like it's a um, it's it, no, 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 sorry, it's a, a Pete's Best, Pete's Best, which is local to Nashville, and it's the French roast. And from what I understand, the darker the roast, the less caffeine. So maybe that has something to do with it. Okay, but um, yes, Pete's Pete's Best. I think it's okay. Pete's well, best. I'll try to find a link to that so people can buy it in the show notes and you know give them lots yes. of money. Show notes are great. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> okay, let's move on to your photography project. Tell me about high-risk humans. So high-risk humans is a pandemic photo series that I started 
with the goal of showcasing the broad range of individuals that falls into the high-risk category. And I wanted to share their faces and their stories. And it started in April of 2020 when there was a protest in downtown Nashville. And people were demanding the reopening of businesses. And somebody held a sign that said, sacrifice the weak, reopen Tennessee. And the weak, in this instance, refers to those in the high-risk categories, those with autoimmune disorders, any with any underlying medical condition. So I read that sign. That sign destroyed me in what was already an awful time. I don't know what April 2020 was like for you, but it was terrible for me. So read that sign. It put me in bed for three days. And on the third day, I decided that I wanted to take pictures of the high risk. So that when someone said sacrifice the weak, I wanted to show them exactly who they were referring to because it's me, it's you, it's my friends, it's my family, it's beautiful people that I love and care about. So I wanted to be able to show them who they were willing to kill. So I started interviewing my neighbors, people in my community, and it turned, it culminated into the high risk humans website. So you've said on on there that empathy is a core part of that project. So what does empathy mean to you and why is it important for this really high stress time in our lives? Empathy for me is the ability to look at someone and acknowledge that they're human. By human, I mean that acknowledge that someone has struggles, someone has stories, someone has hopes and dreams and a past and a future, everything that I am that, you know, that like flies around inside of me flies around inside of everybody. And so to look at somebody and acknowledge all of that is empathy to connect with somebody on that level. And when I started the series, I was very, very angry. (laughs) I was very angry at the sacrifice, the weak person and news, cable news that time was so divisive. It was such an awful time. But one of the first people I interviewed, my friend Megan, she said that she could look at someone that said sacrifice the week and she could understand that they were speaking from a place of fear. And she could see that fear and she could understand that fear. She said, but I don't think that fear, that empathy is reciprocated. As soon as she said the word empathy, it was like, that's the goal. That is what I want out of this. So empathy is so important right now because, you know, with the, like with someone that said sacrifice the weak, all we saw was the anger from that. But anger is a secondary emotion. You don't just wake up angry. Something has to happen for you to be angry. And largely in part, I think my view is that they were all speaking from a place of fear. And so it's important instead of, you know, fighting this anger with anger to look at somebody and and realizing that they're actually terrified. Like maybe, maybe we can open up a dialogue if we realize that. When you were talking about how empathy is, is you and me and it's people like in their whole humanity, it kind of, it reminds me of those times where I look at other people, usually when I'm driving 
And I have that like moment of they're just as human and real and alive as I am. And their lives are just as complex and in, like frustrating and wonderful as mine. But I have no idea what's actually going on in their lives. So mm-hmm. saying that empathy is, is that, that actually kind of brings it home for me. Fantastic. I like bringing things home. You know, uh, people with um, chronic illness, the people in the series, mostly you cannot look at the picture of them and be able to tell that they're high risk. I don't look high risk. You don't look high risk. So I think those that deal with chronic illnesses or the likes were incredibly empathetic because of the battle we fight every day. And so it's more, it's easier for us to look at somebody and empathize because we know what it's like to fight a battle every day. Yeah, that's a good point. What kind of response have you seen from the community for the project? It was a bit of an overwhelming response. I'm not going to lie. Like I, like I said a minute ago, I wanted to, originally the series was going to be for those that say sacrifice the weak. And it turned out to be vastly more important for the high risk and those that cared about them because, you know, we were all so isolated during those times. And so for me to come along and, and share stories and photos of people who are also high risk and who are also going through this incredibly difficult time. And it was comforting for a lot of people. And that was, like I said, it was pretty overwhelming. Like the, the emails and the messages just saying, thank you for sending me, you know, thank you for, for sharing these stories. It makes me feel seen. It makes me feel heard. And it wasn't just the high risk that we're feeling that way. I got plenty of messages from people saying that, you know, their, their mom's high risk or their son's high risk. And it, it spoke to so many people. Besides type 1 diabetes, what other kinds of invisible illnesses came out through that project? I meant to write a list before we started this, and I totally forgot. So I'm going to try and do this off the top of my head. I talked to people with COPD, multiple sclerosis, asthma, heart conditions, transplant recipients, cancer patients, former cancer patients, it's it's such a wide range of people. And I really wish I had written that list down, but it's a lot of people. Do you know how many people you photographed so far? I did about 50 interviews. Okay. How has the project evolved since the beginning of the pandemic? Well, like I said, I, I started off very angry. And then I started interviewing these wonderful people. And they kind of they really softened my heart and I turned it turned into this goal of empathy and showcasing the strength and resilience of all these high risk individuals. There was another important interview with my friend Anana who said, those being referred to as the weakest are inherently the strongest. And that goes back to our conversation about the battles we fight every day. So that became another goal of mine is to highlight the powerhouses that people with chronic illnesses are. You know, we're we're the last person you could ever call weak. So, yeah, like I said, it it turned into the the website and just posted stories there all the time. And, you know, maybe it'll be a book someday. I would love to turn it into a gallery and kind of tour it around and talk to people about everything we learned during this. Are you still interviewing people now? 
yeah, I actually had somebody reach out the other day that wants to do the interview. So yeah. Nice. Do you have a, like a particular favorite interview that you did? They're all, they're all so wonderful. The cool thing was, is that I really didn't know any of the people that I interviewed. I interviewed maybe four or five people that I actually knew, but out of the 50, they were all total strangers. So I spent 45 minutes to two hours talking to people on a very intimate level about pandemic and everything we were going through and fighting. But um, I think off the top of my head, Miss Caroline was one of my favorites. When I interviewed her, she was in the middle of chemo for breast cancer, if I remember correctly. And she came out of her house and we obviously had to do all these interviews very far apart because this was 2020. This is before vaccines. Everything was still very unsafe. So she comes out of her house and I didn't realize at the time, but she had a wig on and we, we did the photo shoot and, but something wasn't like clicking. I couldn't figure out what it was, but there was so, I was missing the connection. So I said, Hey, let's, let's, uh, let's start the interview process. Let's, let's sit down and chat for a while. And so I sat down with her and her daughter and we just started talking for a while. And probably about 30 minutes into the interview, she looks at her daughter and says, I think I want to do pictures without my wig on. And this is, she's a Southern belle. She's, she's a very proper woman. And her daughter looks at her and says, only if you want to, mama, this is not. And I, I chimed in. I said, ma'am, there's no pressure here whatsoever. And she, she gets up and she says, no, maybe, maybe it'll help somebody else. And she takes her wig off and she's, I set her up in a new spot. And as she's walking over, she says, you know, some cute little things like, well, I hope the neighbors don't see me and, and stuff like this. I said, well, ma'am, if you don't want to do this, we don't have to do this. She says, no, 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 it might help somebody else. And, and she sat down. And, you know, she's got the, the shaved head, but she was sitting there and she's like sat taller than before in the previous session. And, you know, I, I put my camera up and I looked through the lens and it was just the most beautiful woman I had ever seen in, in many ways. She was standing there courageously simply because she thought that it might help somebody else. And yeah, that I did the shoot, tried not to cry. It was great. I, I love that shoot. I will always cherish that, that moment that we had. And there were several like that throughout the series. We don't have all the time for that, but there was many special instances throughout the entire process. That is an amazing story. Just like, just hearing that the way you told it was awesome. Oh, good. Woo! <laughs> Okay, what advice do you have for, I guess, the high-risk humans and the type 1 diabetics out, out there? Build your community. Get a community. Find a community. Uh, when I was, I'm from St. Louis, and when I was living in St. Louis, I didn't tell anyone I was diabetic. And then I moved to Nashville, and I didn't tell anyone I was diabetic. And then I started the high-risk human series, and I feel like I started introducing myself, Madison Thorne, the photographer and type 1 diabetic. So I ended up telling all of these people. And what it did is it created a community. And that's, like I said, it's something I didn't have before. And now I can't picture life without it. 
it's done so much, even just for my mental health. You know, I have a, a group text with a couple other diabetics and anytime we're having a stupid day or something like that, we just, we text each other. We'll send each other dumb diabetic related memes and stuff like that. Just, but just having somebody else, it goes back to empathy. It goes back to the need for human connection. So if you're freshly diabetic or you've been diabetic, just just build your community. And I think that's the same with any chronic illness. I think that's the same for people. I think yeah, just, knowing you're not alone. Yeah, we all just need to connect. And that was such a awful part of the pandemic is that we all became so isolated. It was forced isolation. So that was kind of one of the, the beautiful parts of the high-risk series is that it allowed people to connect in, in some way, in some fashion. And speaking of connection, if people want to connect with you, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find the, the photo series at highriskhumans.com. If you care to look at any of my other photography work, I do do other stuff. <laughs> Concert photography mostly. I didn't just start photographing high-risk individuals. I've actually been a photographer for about a decade, but so uh, that's just madisonthorn.com. All right. Thank you so much for coming on to share high-risk humans. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. So our questions for you guys this week is what kind of high-risk humans do you know in your community? What kind of community do you have around you right now? We'd love to hear more from you guys in the comments. That is it for this episode of This is Type 1. Thank you so much to Madison for coming on as a guest to the show. You can find her High Risk Humans project at highriskhumans.com or on Instagram at high underscore risk underscore humans. You can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 119. It's the number 119. Apply to be a guest by visiting thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade. Are you ready to feel better with type 1 diabetes without changing how you manage it? So not changing what you eat, how much you exercise, all of that stuff. You can watch the free video on how to do just that at inspiredforward.com. I'm on all social media as at inspiredforward, and our email is colleen at inspiredforward.com. Our podcast Instagram is at this is type one pod. That's the number one. I'm personally on Instagram as at JJ underscore crystal KAT. Please feel free to send us questions or comments on either or both accounts. We would love to hear from you guys and just make sure you let us know you're a listener of the show and let us know what's your favorite episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to listen next week for another episode about real life with type one diabetes. Remember you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.